This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. President Biden suddenly took his face mask off in the open air this past week. Indeed, the CDC announced that all of us who are vaccinated can strip from our faces those barriers to friendship and communication. We have some hope that life will return to normal, but the costs of the battle against COVID have been horrendous, especially for young people, say Charles Hooper and David Henderson in an op-ed that appeared earlier this month in the Wall Street Journal. Unfortunately, school closures, mask wearing, social distancing have all been imposed on children for no good reason whatsoever, they say. The chances that an 18-year-old will die from COVID is about four thousandths of 1%. The benefits are trivial. The costs are enormous. Add it all up, we have killed more children over the course of their lifetime than we have saved by COVID protections. Wow. Did that actually appear in a family newspaper? To discuss their research, I have with me today David Henderson, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and former economic health advisor to the President's Council of Economic Advisors and one of the authors of the Wall Street Journal's provocative op-ed to which I just referred. So David, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Well, David, were these measures that have been taken really worse than the disease for young people. They absolutely were. What we did was we looked, we used something that you know, I'm sure you know from your research and so on called expected values. You look at, okay, when you take all these measures, what's the expected reduction in incidence of COVID? And so for young people, the incidence was so low that even if you reduced it by half, and then, of course, if you protect them from dying, you save, if it's an 18-year-old, 61.2 years of life, that's a large number. But take that small, small probability reduction times 61.2, and you get 7.5 hours of life. So all of these measures were, if, if we just think in terms of young people and don't think of spread to old people, I'll say more about that in a minute, but just in terms of young people, all of these measures that they have suffered through and are still somewhat suffering through are to save them an expected value of one third of a day of their lives. Well, okay, but when I talk to young people, they say I'm doing it for grandma. So they right. sort of recognize this. It's not like this is not, uh, you know, young people are as rational and intelligent as anybody else out there. And they know that the chances of their really suffering from this disease are pretty trivial, but, but they're doing it for grandma. Well, and that's a good point. And yeah. so in fact, there is a statement in, in the Wall Street Journal, I wish we'd stated different. It was, you know, you're under the gun when they send you an edit. We say this, everything this younger person has been through over the past year was to prevent on average the loss of 7.5 hours of his life. Well, one person commented, well, that's not quite true. It's also to save grandma. But here's the thing. There's something in economics called least cost avoider. So if you've got an externality, and this is an externality, who should be 
avoiding? Who, who should be responding? Well, it's the person who's the least cost. Since it is coincidentally the elderly who have the biggest probability of dying, and they tend, and we're talking people 65 and over, most of them are retired, it would be much easier for them to isolate than to isolate all these young people. And so we can still save grandma to the extent we can with younger people being free to move around. But the point that people really make to me time and time again, when I, when I say things similar to what you've said, not quite mm -hmm. as elegantly, but similar, uh, they say, well, but you know, uh, if we don't do all this protection, the COVID's gonna spread willy nilly to grandma. Anyhow, it's gonna get into those nursing homes, the aides are gonna bring it in, the community, people are gonna just, you know, there's gonna be enough interaction out there so that it's inevitably gonna to spread to the, the elderly. Well, but then look at what they did with the nursing homes. Look at Cuomo and requiring the nursing homes to take back people even when they had COVID. And we got a, probably, tens of thousands of excess deaths in New York State, in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey, and one or two other places because of that horrible policy. So it really didn't save grandma. And as far as you know, older, younger people spreading, tell younger people they can't go visit grandma, which is what they told them anyway. And then you know, also we could have done better by, see a lot of the people who work in nursing homes work in more than one nursing home. And so if you think about the trillions of dollars, and I mean trillions with a TR that have been spent, you could have spent under 1% of that to pay people excess pay. So all they had to do was work in one nursing home and even live nearby or even live maybe somewhere within it. And then there isn't that spread. So there could have been a concentrated, a, a well-financed effort to yeah. do as many of the things you need to do to protect people, to make sure that the people who did see the elderly in the nursing homes, that they were exercising every possible precaution and, and to reward people, to, to, uh, to bring on more people and to pay them higher salaries so that you get the highest quality service in order to really uh, address this problem. But practically speaking, could you have implemented that quickly enough? Um, given that they, they passed a $2 trillion measure back in March of 2020, with maybe a few, you know, days of thinking about it, could they have done the same thing and just focused it on, on, I mean, already because of the Italian data and also because of CDC data, we knew that approximately 80% of the people who died from COVID were 65 or older. And so just with that knowledge, they certainly could have done that. I don't see why they could You couldn't. know, one, one day very early on, I think it was in January or February of 2020, I, I was talking uh, by email with a friend and I said, you know, this thing, the, the chances of getting this thing are so slow and really getting a serious illness is so minimal that, you know, aren't we making too much of this? And the reply I got was, yeah, but you're in a particular age group where you, you might take this a bit more seriously. So I went to the website and I dug up the, the, the age specific data that was available even that early on. And I said to myself, well, actually <laughs> I am in an age group where I should worry about this thing. We knew very, on, very early on that this was 
a particular virus that had a, 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 an unusual pattern to it. Yeah, yeah. It, it hit a, a very uh, specific segment of the population to a much greater degree than any other segment. Yeah, and I was, I mean, I'm 70 and I spoke last fall at an event in Omaha. It's my only trip other, you know, in, during this whole thing uh, with Jay Bhattacharya, a uh, colleague from Stanford and is also, he's a- He's been on, our, on this uh, podcast, so- Okay, uh, yeah, and he's a, he's a colleague and economist and now a friend. And he said to, he said to the audience, now, you know, it, this mainly hits older people. And I said, Jay, you're not making me feel good. <laughs> and so, but, but anyway, the point is, I did do those things. I was out in the world every day. I'm in an office now, you can see, that I rent, but they closed down the whole building. And I just went to my landlord and said, can I keep coming in? But I wasn't interacting with anyone, you know, for months and months. And so there are things we can do. And, and it's just like, when they say you're all in this together, it's literally true. It's one of those things, people misuse the word literally. This one is literally true, but figuratively not because we aren't, it's not the same degree of risk at all. And that's what they should have been communicating. The CDC was just delinquent. They knew it. I mean, you can go to their site and see these data, but that's not what's being talked about every day. Well, let's 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 focus on the young people here. Uh, what do you see as the costs of uh, of this policy that we've been pursuing? What you say it's worse? It, it's, it's not so bad, is it, to have to wear a mask and uh, stay away from somebody else? Uh, um, I think it is. I think it is, especially for young people. They really need that interaction. So I want to put schools aside, which I know is your interest, and I will get to that. But just put schools aside. We have these two sweet kids next door, and they all the and fortunately the big brother is so nice to his little sister, just because we hear him in the yard. I mean, that's all they have to play with for a year. I mean, that is just that's horrible. People, you know. Uh, Aristotle said man is a social animal and man are we learning that's true and especially kids I think and and so I just think it's I mean I think if you look at people's source of pleasure other people are them are at least half of it I think for almost everyone um, now in education you know that how much they've lost now there is this issue of how do you measure that loss so in the article we quote one of our Hoover colleagues, Eric Hanischek, and another guy whose name... No, no, that's a really interesting study that they do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the one that I uh, like is the one on children in, in, in Europe who, who lost a year or more of education because of World War II. And you were mm -hmm. able to track downstream oh. many years later uh exactly what their incomes were and they were roughly at the same the estimate that you get from that is very similar to the one that you get uh that uh Hanushek and Wisman uh, produced which is uh, they come up with a hundred thousand lifetime you can get that from a lot of different studies that come up with very similar sets of numbers so it's a pretty reasonable figure that about uh, I think it's about 10 percent or a year's worth of earnings right. or something like that is what you yeah. Over the course yeah. of your lifetime. So I hadn't, I had not known that. And of course, what that, the, the World War II study is going to be more credible in a sense, because we've got what, 60 years of, of, of data based on that. Um, but also, I do think it's overstated a little. Um, I'm a big fan of one of my co bloggers, Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book called The Case Against Education. And he argues that most of education, most of schooling, is signaling. 
And so if everyone's in the same boat, then we lost a lot of signaling. So we so so his estimate is like 20% of education is human capital. I'm inclined to think it's more like 40%. And that's, if I'd had a, more space in the Wall Street Journal, I would have made that point. We just didn't have that space. And I wanted people to see whatever it is, it's a huge number. It is a huge number. Right. And of course, you, you could say this, the, the, the other classes are going to, if it's all signaling, then the people who come later on are going to get the benefits of it because they're going to get the be able to uh, signal. So no, it's a transfer true. of wealth from one group to another. But I, I'm more inclined to think it's a, a genuine loss. Signals I don't think uh, mean anything unless they mean something. So <laughs> you know if the if there's a signal at the train stop but there's never a train, you're gonna you're gonna not pay much attention to the signal. So. You know, there's something about this signaling argument that never is totally convincing to me. But the other thing I want to point out, and I think World War II is kind of relevant in this sense, too. A lot of people are going to be left with a lot of fear. I worry about how a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old is when, when, the, when the, the parents say, okay, you don't need to wear a mask. How, how afraid are they going to be? I mean, I'm hoping that 95% of them get over it within a few weeks or months, but I don't know that. That's just my hope. And also, well, I was way, alarmed yeah. to read today that in Los Angeles, about 7% of the uh, older kids in, um, in that school district are, are back in classes. They can go back to class now. They finally yeah. opened up the doors in California, but yeah. nobody's going to class because they say, well, there's too many restrictions when we get there and uh, we're afraid to go back. And they, you know, kids can make up lots of excuses when it comes to going to school. And so we have now legitimated making up excuses for not going to school. And how long is that gonna be around? Well, true, but I mean, I happen to know, I live in Pacific Grove and I've talked to a number of, my daughter's 36, so we're not worried about that. But I've talked to a number of parents of little kids and they tell me, the rules they have set for going back to school. You got on the playground, you got to have a mask. You can't be more than six, less than six feet from another kid, even when wearing a mask. And it's like, who wants that? I mean that, so yeah, there might be some excuses, but I think there's some serious reasons why people could legitimately object to sending their kids back. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, it's 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 not a lot of fun to have to do everything uh, in a highly constrained way, and people were just yeah. as soon stay home and to have to go through all the hassle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but you wrote previously about vaccinations, and I thought that was a really interesting piece as well. And and I was wondering if you wanted to give me some thought: is what if we had let the vaccine to go to market as soon as possible? Because after all, this is a, a vaccine for a virus. We've been making vaccines for, for viruses for a very long period of time. You could actually, uh, it's a, a rather modest adaptation from other vaccines out there. Why did you have to go through this prolonged agony of a three-stage clinical trial procedure uh, that the FDA imposed before we could begin to get the benefits from the vaccine? Because the FDA did you know what? The FDA actually did better than they normally do. So I can't say they did business as usual. They did business a little faster than usual because, uh, you know, with this emergency authorization and so on. But I mean, as you probably know, the, uh, the Moderna people had the solution within a couple of days 
in January 2020. No, I and, heard that from your piece. I found that yeah. fascinating yeah. that they were able to actually come up with the right vaccine within yeah. days after learning uh, what the virus was exactly. Right. And now there's always a slip betwixt uh, cup and lip. And so you don't know it's going to work. But why not do, I mean, pe people, people, economists talked about this. Let's pay people 10 grand each to put them to take this and put themselves at risk and do a double blind. And we might know by March or April, you know, whether this is any good. March or April of 2020, which would have saved a few hundred thousand lives here and probably a million or two million lives uh, international, you know, globally. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a, an opponent of the FDA. I, I got my PhD in economics at UCLA under Sam and Sam Peltzman was one of my professors. He's the one who, who, who blew the whistle on the food and drug administration with the Kefauver amendments of 1962 that said, you can't, you, you, you've got to show efficacy as well as safety. And that he pointed out that slowed down new drug development by 60%. And so, yeah, I mean, that that was another one that that slowed things down. And so well, a lot of people were very upset about thalidomide and it got out there and we had a lot of uh, terrible, tragic stories out there. Uh, but isn't that interesting? So, yeah. Thalidomide worked. So that the problem with thalidomide wasn't that it didn't solve morning sickness. The problem was it led to babies with deformed limbs. So it was a safety issue, not an efficacy issue. But they used thalidomide to sell the idea of requiring evidence of efficacy, which makes zero sense. And so, in fact, it, it pretty much worked. This woman, Frances Kelsey, at the FDA was kind of paying attention. And they stopped thalidomide from being on the market much earlier in the process than Europe had. And so we didn't have nearly as many of those things as, uh, as Europe had. So, but still, even if you had just looked at the safety question, wouldn't that have taken as long as what took uh, place with, or did, or did proving efficacy no. take much longer than? Uh, proving efficacy always takes longer. So for the standard, I don't know about this one, but for the standard drug, safety was like typically two or three years and efficacy is another six to eight. So for, for drugs in general, uh, I don't know about this one. It might be this one took two months for safety and then six months for efficacy or something like that. Well, if you go back to the Asian flu, which is in 1957, it's a year when I was a junior in high school. So I remember the Asian flu precisely. And uh, we partied and carried on and had the best old time, uh, even though this was a disease out there that targeted teenagers in, in yes. particular, not, not so, yeah, old people too, but teenagers yeah. were a high risk group. We paid no attention to it. The vaccination got developed by March and was, uh, I think it was out in the field by, by July. A very smart guy in Montana figured out how to do this. So yeah. Uh, they they actually got that thing to market much more quickly than yeah the, and so yeah I, I just numbers recently on this uh, I looked at because uh, my colleague at Hoover Neil Ferguson had written something in the Wall Street Journal and so I started investigating more and what I did was I took the upper end of the estimate of the deaths from Asian flu in the United States 57 58 and then blew them up for our current population so the upper end if you for our for if we had that today relative to our population would have been 220,000 deaths. I think when this thing's all over, we'll have roughly three times that much, maybe a little less, 600,000 and some. And so this say is three times as bad 
as the Asian flu in terms of deaths. But then you point out it, tend, it tended to go after the younger people. So now you think in terms of life, lost life years, and guess what? We're where the Asian flu is roughly the same as the current COVID. But it, the Asian flu would have been much worse if the vaccine had not been brought to market as quickly as it did. It, it right. beat this right. one to market by, I, I'd say, three to five months. Um, it was uh, that guy, Morris Hillerman, right? Wasn't that the guy? I, I think that's the name of the yeah, fellow. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was an amazing man. So now tell me this. A friend of mine said just uh, this morning, uh, he said, you know, CDC changed its mind very quickly. What's going on here? So he 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 actually says, look at the 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 market's been collapsing, inflation is going up. We've had a, a spate of bad news for about a week now. Was this an accident that this thing came out at the end of uh, of, of a bad set of stories in the in the news media? I don't think it was an accident, but I don't, think it, I don't think it relates to that at all. I think it's that CDC is an incredibly political organization and they see people chafing under these masking rules and a whole lot of very commonsensical people saying, what was the point of me getting vaccinated? What was the point of me of having that bad weekend from that second shot so I could keep wearing a mask? And so I think, and if you look at what they did as you probably followed more than I did, Paul, with the rules on schools, it's like they actually let the, what's her name? Randy Weingarten have, have input into what those rules are. That's crazy. I mean, that, you know, so, so no, I mean, they are a political organization. So they kind of move, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be totally ignored. And so they kind of adjust to where people are going anyway. It's like- well, I, I'd say some of the, it. some of our governors have to take credit for, for, for the uh, release of this because yeah. they've been showing in Florida and Texas that you don't need to wear masks and nothing terribly yeah. awful is, is happening out there in yeah. the community. You, do you think that actually was part of the, the story that the states that have been giving up on these controls we're showing that the consequences were not that serious and therefore and so if they were just looking at the science they would have been on this a few months ago if they're looking at the political pressures that explains i think why they did it more recently so i think you know one of my i'm gonna not gonna say heroes i'm gonna say semi-heroes and i'll say why is uh, the governor of florida ron DeSantis. i give him uh, at least two cheers maybe that's two-thirds of a hero where I'd fault him is when he says companies are not allowed to have vaccine passports. And I believe in freedom of association. I believe a company that feels different about that should be able to say, you enter my business, you have a vaccine passport. And he was the one, by the way, who wanted to open up the cruise lines. And now some of the cruise lines are saying, we're not going to do this without being allowed to require people. Yeah, well, I don't know why anybody who wants to open up the economy would do anything to retard the distribution of vaccines, since the yeah. uh, vaccination is the viable path forward to getting us back to an orderly economy. Uh, why aren't you uh, giving people incentives to get them vaccinated? Well, yeah, we've got that, what is it, uh, Ohio, where they have the lottery, they're using some of the COVID funds for a million dollar lottery if you get a vaccine. And as I said, when someone commented on Facebook yesterday, I've seen way worse uses of that COVID money 
than doing that. So yeah, yeah, well, a lot of businesses are doing something similar. They're saying if employees will uh, get themselves vaccinated, we'll give them a 2% salary increase or we'll give them, I, usually it's a bonus of some kind or, yeah. or, yeah. or, or participate in a company lottery where you get a yeah. new car if, if in fact. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bar across the street from me and they somehow sometimes hang out because they have to smoke outside. And I talked to the owner through all this. And uh, anyway, I just saw them open for the first time yesterday. And I'm thinking of just getting a whole bunch of $50 bills and going in there and saying, guys, you know, I don't like bars that much, but I love freedom. And I think we're going to have more freedom the more people who get vaccinated. So who here is holding off on getting vaccinated? And then saying, here's 50 bucks if you get vaccinated. Just maybe, maybe if I could get 10 people vaccinated, you know, I can afford 500 bucks. So uh, well, you do have to cheer the president, don't you? He, he did, he did uh, take this recommendation and run with it. And which president? Which president Biden. Oh, um, so uh, by going out there and taking the mask off and saying, "Look at, we're we're free. Uh, go ahead." Uh, no, I, I don't cheer for that because I think he's like the CDC, and he should have been saying that months ago. He should have been. And and look at that picture of him. So he goes to a press conference. Everyone there is vaccinated. He's way more than six feet from anyone. Then he goes to these ninety-plus-year-old Carters in Georgia. And the picture shows him, I mean, they look like giants compared to the Carters for whatever reason. But aside from that, the point is it shows them right up beside them, 90 plus year olds, and no one's having a mask. Now, I'm sure everyone in the room is vaccinated. But come on, if that if he's sensible enough to do that, he should have been sensible enough to be doing that stuff a month, two months, three months ago. Now, you can't criticize, criticize a president for being political. Oh, I can. Yes, Oh, that, no, that's what presidents can. Paul, I can when the question was that I should cheer the president. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is a uh, a moment in time which I think uh, is is a turning point, uh, and uh, it came much too late. And your op-ed points out that the the costs that we've paid, especially for some groups in the population far exceed. So what would you do next time? I mean, we're going to have a pandemic again. This isn't the last um, virus that's going to come out of nowhere and sweep across the world. Uh, we can probably say within a decade, something like this will happen again. What should be the response? I wrote a piece in Reason Magazine, the June issue, saying here are the things we know from economics that we should have followed in this whole thing. And I believe this back in March of last year. And basically central planning doesn't work. Externalities are real, but the way to do it is have the least cost avoider avoid the action. So that means the older people. Incentives work. So don't give away a vaccine that's very valuable. Let the market produce it. I think we would have got it faster. We certainly would have got better distribution. We had a kind of a Soviet style distribution. So all those things. What I also, my little hope at the end, as I said, is that there will be legislatures who say, I'm never going to let this governor have this kind of power again, Governor Whitmore, Whitmer, my governor, uh, Newsom, you know, so, so I, what I want, see, the more, the more extreme it is, if the government can convince us it's extreme, 
the more we take action, the more extreme the measure is, the, the, the disease is, the more extreme are our actions voluntarily. And so we were, we were shutting down in various ways. We were avoiding, I mean, NCAA, NBA, NHL, all canceled way before they were, well, days and weeks before they were required to. So we show with our behavior, we take these things seriously and we adjust. So I don't want the government ever to have the power to lock down. Am I going to get my way? Probably not. But I bet you legislatures are going to say, hey, show us your evidence. Let's see a little more about why you think a lockdown is a good idea. And, and I think in many cases, they'll be unable to do that, even for extreme pandemics. So the next time around, show, be more nuanced, rely on the market, rely on people's own good judgment. Don't try to uh, impose uh, lockdowns and control everybody's life from top to bottom. Right, right. Well, David, this has been a fantastic uh, ex uh, opportunity to discuss your really uh, important essay in, that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. I have been speaking with David Henderson, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of a widely circulated op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on the harms done to young people by school closures and social distancing practices during the COVID crisis. Please join me for a new education exchange podcast uh, released every Monday at noon Eastern time.